The American POTUS Podcast is a 501c3 nonprofit show supported by listener patriots just like you. To help us keep the program going, please join others around the nation by considering a tax-deductible donation. You can make your contribution and see what exciting plans we have for new podcasts and other outreach programs at AmericanPOTUS.org. Thank you for your support, and we hope you enjoy this episode. On this episode of American POTUS, Harry Truman, the smart, humble, confident Midwestern VP, woke up one day to find himself running the country. And it was no time to sit back and let issues and policies just play out. It was one of the most tumultuous times in global history, wrapping up a world war and attempting to manage a new Cold War. But the personal side of POTUS 33 tells the enlightening story of how this famously plain-spoken man was so successful. President, husband, and grandfather, Harry Truman. He's on this episode of American POTUS. I'm Scott Brunn. With the help of presidential scholar Alan Lowe, we're opening the book on the men who have held our nation's highest office. In each episode, we'll tap into our nationwide cabinet of historians, authors, experts, and others to reveal the most compelling moments from these extraordinary patriots. In this episode, we're thrilled to offer a very unique personal perspective on a POTUS. Joining us is Clifton Truman Daniel. He's the oldest grandson of POTUS Harry S. Truman and First Lady Bess Truman. He is an honorary chairman of the board of the Truman Library Institute, nonprofit partner of the Truman Presidential Library and Museum in Independence, Missouri, as well as the board secretary of the Harry S. Truman Scholarship Foundation. He's written a couple of books about his very famous grandparents titled Growing Up With My Grandfather, Memories of Harry S. Truman, and Dear Harry, Love Bess, Bess Truman's Letters to Harry Truman, 1919 to 1943. We will link to both of those titles on our website, AmericanPOTUS.com. Clifton, you're our first POTUS family member to join us on the podcast. Thanks for taking the time to share some of your stories. Uh, you're welcome. No pressure. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> Clifton, it's it's great to talk with you again. I know I've said this to you before, but I grew up in a household where Harry Truman was um, one of the big heroes, particularly with my grandfather, Lowe. And so this is a real, real treat for me and I'm sure for our listeners. Uh, let's talk about your grandparents when they left Washington and went back to Independence. What was it about Independence, Missouri that they loved? And what was a normal day like for them after after the presidency? Um, they went back <laughs> just because that was home. That was where their house was, uh, the only house they owned, the only house they ever owned. And they actually, uh, as an aside, they actually didn't own it until they bought it from my great-grandmother's estate. They lived with her from the day they were married in 1919 till the day she died in 1952. So it only then did it become their house. So they went home. They that was uh, there was some talk, I believe, that my, weirdly coming from my grandmother who floated the idea of staying in Washington, and I think Grandpa put a stop to that by saying nobody wants an ex-president hanging around Washington. <laughs> <D. Right. laughs> I was just wondering if he ever if he ever spoke with you about his initial getting into politics of why he did that and, and what that was like as he decided to pursue a life in public service. No, never, never spoke to me. I was 15 when my grandfather passed away and we saw them on family vacations. So it was, we were either in independence or, or he and my grandmother came to New York 
or the, the best ones were going down to Key West with them for spring break. So there wasn't really, plus I was young, right. you know, and grandpa, <laughs> grandpa would give you a history lesson if you could get a hold of you. So you had to be careful. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> if, you know, if you're, you're on vacation from school, you've had history all over the place and math and biology and English and Latin. Wow. You get on vacation, and, and the last thing that you do is go to your grandfather and say, hey, teach me about the war, Grandpa. How would you get into politics? So the, those discussions were few and far between. One of the only ones that he and I ever had was on the Battle of Gettysburg because I had been to the battlefield with my parents on the way to Independence for a visit, and we had stopped in Colonial Williamsburg and Gettysburg on the way, and I was fascinated with the battlefield, and of course I got to independence and looked on grandpa's bookshelves and yanked out every book I could find that had pictures at that point. I think I was only 12 years old, 11 or 12. So I yanked out all the books that had uh, Matthew Brady photographs and uh, daguerreotypes of the, uh, of the battlefield in the aftermath, sadly. And he walked in and of course wondered why I had yanked half of his bookshelf apart. And I explained to him about the battlefield, and I all I don't remember exactly what he said. I just remember thinking that sounds like he was there um, because he knew he knew so much about it. But so we didn't. He got into politics. He'd always liked politics. If uh, if you read about him, he even as even his letters to my grandmother when they were courting between 1910 and 1919, he expressed an interest in getting into politics. He actually actually mentioned running for Eastern Judge of Jackson County, which turned out to be the first political appointment, political election he had, first political job he had. So that was kind of cool. But he taught, he, he was, uh, his father, John Truman, uh, had a couple of appointments, including uh, road overseer of Washington Township, where their farm was in Grandview, I think. So he had, uh, and, and John Truman loved to discuss politics, and he was, John Truman also... <laughs> You don't want to get in an argument with John Truman. He was he was known as a as an honest, straightforward, hardworking guy, a good human being, but uh, he had a temper and he loved to argue politics. So Grandpa got that from I think primarily from his father. So he always had an interest in politics, and he got into it because his his door was Jim Pendergast, whose uncle Tom Pendergast ran the Kansas City Jackson County Democratic machine. Jim. It was a fellow officer in World War One, fellow member of the Missouri National Guard. And after the war, when Grandpa and his business partner, Eddie Jacobson, started the haberdashery, Jim came to him uh, the first year, 19, came to him in 1919, or early 1920, and said, you want to run for Eastern Judge? And Grandpa and Eddie were making a good living at that time. The post-war recession, uh, a year or so later, stopped him cold, killed the business. But at that point, they were they were making good money. And Grandpa said, I can't. I've got a growing business, and I need to pay attention to it. And, of course, in 1922, when the business had had to close, Jim came back, and Grandpa ran, won the election in 1922. What have you learned in your studies of your granddad? I know you, you uh, perform on stage now, the one-man show, Give Him Hell, Harry. As you have you have done that research, what have you learned about his relationship with the Roosevelt's. I'm very curious as to, was that a close relationship with Franklin and Eleanor? How did they get along? And then, of course, can you talk to us about that, that horrible day when he learned that the uh, the presidency now was was his office given the death of, of FDR? 
he had he had a much closer relationship with Mrs. Roosevelt than he did with FDR. He was a, he was a an FDR Democrat. He was a New Deal Democrat, and he backed President Roosevelt. There was a rift in their early relationship, if you could even call it that. I don't know how how much President Roosevelt was even aware of Grandpa's existence or how much he knew about him prior to 1944. But in 1940, when Grandpa ran for his second term in the United States Senate, it looked as though Roosevelt might throw his backing to Grandpa's opponent, Lloyd Stark, who at that time was the governor of Missouri. And Grandpa and Tom Pendergast had helped get Stark elected several years earlier. And Stark had actually promised my grandfather, oh, I, I, would, I wouldn't think of running against you. And Grandpa always says, when, when somebody tells you that, that's exactly what they intend right, to do. Right. So he, uh, he, had, uh, he had his eye on Stark. But Roosevelt eventually soured on Stark, and Grandpa won that election. It, it took him a lot of work, but he won it. So their early relationship had that hiccup, but Grandpa remained uh, committed to Roosevelt's policies and uh, to Roosevelt himself. Mrs. Roosevelt, this, this would be post, uh, post-presidency for, and I'm not sure how much of it, um, how much of the correspondence they maintained while Grandpa was in office, but post-presidency, they wrote to each other, talked to each other. Uh, and they had, they had a, a good friendship. Uh, I don't know how often they got together, but it was on paper. Uh, and there have been uh, books written about that. I think um, I want to say Steve Neal, the late uh, political columnist for the Sun Times here in Chicago, uh, wrote one on their correspondence back and forth. Uh, that and that fateful day, of course, April twelfth, nineteen forty-five, when FDR died, and Grandpa went over to the White House. It was Mrs. Roosevelt he saw and spoke to first. And of course, that famous line was the first thing Grandpa said was, "What can we do for you?" And she took his hands in hers and said, I think the question is, what can we do for you? Because you're the one who's in trouble now. So they, but they had a close relationship. I, I joked uh, several years ago, I was at an event commemorating the 70th uh, anniversary of the ending of the war. I was with David Roosevelt and Mary Jean Eisenhower. And the three of us were sitting, we were, we were actually in uh, uh, Taipei. <laughs> the Taiwanese government had invited all three of us. And we were up late in the hotel uh, talking about the relationships that our grandfathers had, good and bad, with each other, because Ike and Roosevelt all had different relationships. And just as we were heading up, I joked to David, I said, you know something. And, and FDR, of course, played his cards close to the vest with everybody. And Grandpa only met with him twice, I think, and both were pretty much photo ops. So the, Grandpa didn't know much of anything. And I told David that, except I said, David, you know, your grandfather didn't tell my grandfather a damn thing. And we all went to bed. <laughs> and we came down in the morning. David came down in the morning. And I said, morning, David. How are you? And he smiled and said, I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> so it continues. <laughs> it continues, yeah. This is bad as it ever <laughs> So you, you, you made me curious. What, what do you think in terms of the relationship of Truman and Eisenhower? I know that was good and sometimes very bad. Uh, what was behind that? Well, you know, the, my grandfather has, has said what what was behind it was a couple of things. One, I think he was a little he actually offered <laughs> he actually I was going to say he offered the presidency to Eisenhower, but you really can't do that. Uh, so he offered in the next the next cycle that to to uh, put Ike up for president, and Grandpa would run as vice president. And I think he 
he did that on two occasions. You know, it'd be, be great if you'd, if you'd run. Always with an eye on, uh, on you know, keeping the party going, keeping, keeping the Democrats in the White House. And he thought that, he thought that Ike was uh, going to be a more popular item than he was. Uh, Eisenhower, of course, politely refused. And so then in, in 1952, when Eisenhower ran as the Republican nominee, I think Grandpa was a little, a little put out. But more than anything, uh, he was irritated by uh, President Eisenhower's, and I wouldn't call it a refusal, but he did not defend General Marshall against charges of being a traitor to the country. And Grandpa just thought, thought, thought that, was, that was incomprehensible to him, that, that Eisenhower would do that. And then it, then there was, and, and then there became a lot of sniping and, and mistrust. I wrote an article for the uh, Chicago Tribune some months back about the orderly transition of power, and this is when, this is after the November election, and everything was so fractious uh, coming upon January. And they were, uh, my grandfather and President Eisenhower were, were really at each other's throats, sort of politely, but there was not a lot of good communication. Uh, yet, despite that. My grandfather made sure that there was an orderly transition to power and did everything he could to make sure that Eisenhower's folks got in and knew what was going on and uh, could could hit the ground running. So, and then they 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 put it all behind them. I believe at John F. Kennedy's funeral, they and I'm not sure exactly how it happened. Um, I think that the story I heard was that Mrs. Kennedy had uh, forgotten or not made um, arrangements for. President Eisenhower to have lunch, and Grandpa wound up uh, making him a sandwich in Blair House. They were staying at Blair House, my parents were, and they wound up just sitting down with a glass of milk and a ham sandwich or something like that and talking it out, and they put it behind them. I was with my grandparents when in Key West when President Eisenhower died, and my grandfather was visibly upset when he got the news. So that uh, to him it would have been the loss of a friend. Sure. I would really have liked to have been a fly on the wall for that Blair House sandwich they had together. That that would have, that would have been awesome to hear that that conversation. Wouldn't we all? Because we have no people ask me what they do. What did they say? I don't know. Right. I, I have no idea. Right. Well, loyal and and staunch FDR Democrat that your grandfather was, he also later um, really was very kind to Herbert Hoover. Was he not? He helped Hoover kind of be rehabilitated and have a role in his later life, as I recall. Yeah, I'm, and I'm not in. Uh, I think that uh, Margaret Hoover, his great daughter, is a friend of ours, and I think that Margaret. I don't. I don't think you could say that uh, that President Hoover needed to be rehabilitated. Uh, but, but Grandpa, um, I always loved it that he just sent uh, President Hoover a note, just uh, snuck it past all of his PR people, and said, "Come on to the White House. I'd like to speak to you." And I got. President Hoover back doing what he did best, which was organizing and, and supply and all of that. I mean, he did a fantastic job after two world wars. So, and they were, they went to each other's, uh, they, they became, Margaret and I like to joke that during, you know, the campaigns, 1952, 1956, even I think 1960, they would trot out these, these old these former presidents and, and on the campaign trail and Hoover would say terrible things about my grandfather and Democrats. And my grandfather would say terrible things about Hoover and the Republicans. And then they'd call each other that night and go, Hey, I'm really sorry about that. If you've heard that. <laughs> <laughs> just how, just how it was done. Like, yeah. hey, no problem. Right. <laughs> just how the 
play, no problem. And they did go to each other's. President Hoover was at the dedication of the Truman Library in uh, 1957, and uh, Grandpa went to Hoover's, I think, in 1962. So a, a woman, uh, one of the fun asides about President Hoover's, a woman asked him at the Truman Library dedication. She said, uh, Mr. President, what is it that ex-presidents do? And Hoover said, well, madam, we take pills and attend each other's library dedications. <laughs> hey, sounds like a, not a bad life, really. You know, when your grandfather came into office, the, he was immediately um, in charge of ending the war. And one of the big decisions was, uh, do we drop the atomic bomb on Japan, a bomb he didn't really know about before then? What do you think was behind that decision he made? How did he analyze that decision? And did he ever regret it? I would say it was both. Uh, he he actually has said publicly on, a, on several occasions, and I think has written that if he had to do it all over again, he would make the same decision to end the war and save lives on both sides. His primary responsibility was American soldiers, sailors, Marines uh, serving in the Pacific. But he also had a mind that, uh, to spare the Japanese uh, reports of, and, he, I've, and I've spoken to survivors of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and they were they were training, they were they were training alongside soldiers. They were their government was exhorting them to fight to the death, and they had seen that uh, particularly on Okinawa uh, and other islands in the Pacific that the soldiers were committing mass suicide rather than surrender. So, for all they knew at that time. Uh, this was going to be a bloodbath. So he had that in mind when he made the decision. That said, he was horrified by the destruction and surprised that the that the second one had been dropped on Nagasaki so quickly after the first, only three days later. And at that point, he took back control of the weapon. He had, he had given them go-ahead to the military, and he took civilian control back uh, in the Oval Office where it rests today because he said it was just too horrible a weapon. It is not It is not a normal weapon. It is, it is aimed at women and children and whole cities, and you can't just use something like that. So it was both. There was a story that I don't know is still out there. There was a, a photographer named Joe O'Donnell, and Mr. O'Donnell was, I think, I want to say he was a Marine photographer. He was a Marine sergeant, and he took some of the first pictures of the destruction in Hiroshima and Nagasaki after the war. Some of those pictures, I think, were going to form uh, some of the exhibit, the 95, the proposed 1995 exhibit of the Enola Gay at the Smithsonian that caused so much of a flack with uh, U.S. servicemen's organizations and with government and with voters because it was, it was purporting to depict graphically the effect that those bombs had on the people of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And the exhibit was eventually uh, watered way down uh, because of the, the hue and cry. But Mr. O'Donnell apparently uh, was with my grandfather. He, he, was, he was at Wake Island with my grandfather as a photographer. And he said, and I, again, I don't know if this is factual or not, but supposedly he had a moment or two alone with my grandfather. He said, don't you ever have any regrets about using those weapons. And my grandfather's reply was, hell yes. You know, don't use a weapon like that and cause that much destruction without regretting to have to do it. But I think that's the way grandfather would have, would have put it, was that he regretted having to do it, that he would have thought that. Um, and that seems to, be, seems to be the consensus. I see. You know, as, as we got ready to talk with you today, I was reminded again of how 
much how much happened during your your grandfather's presidency just an amazing time in our history the the victory in world war ii the the korean war the marshall plan the beginning of the cold war really your grandfather put together the structure that enables to take on the soviets and ultimately win the cold war what do you think looking back on his presidency he perhaps was most proud of and what what did he perhaps regret from the presidency um i I don't know about most proud of. Um, I think Grandpa was, he was somebody who, well, yeah, I'll tell you a story that he liked to tell. Uh, there's a, um, and I'm going to forget the guy's name. I should look these things up. Uh, he was, it was a, um, it was a headstone on Boot Hill in Tombstone, Arizona. Um, and, uh, yeah, Jack Williams, that's who it was. It just popped into my head. All the headstone says was, here lies Jack Williams. He'd done his damnedest. And Grandpa really admired the simplicity and the truth in that. And he said that was, you know, he said that's, that is the highest compliment you can pay to anybody. You know, if they've done their best, that's it. And that's what he tried to do is just do his best. I don't know how much, I don't know what he was, what he was proud of in the way of the presidency or not. Uh, I think he didn't, he didn't talk about pride very much. He didn't, uh, I don't want to say he didn't have any, but uh, that wasn't his focus. As far as regrets goes, I think he was, um, he, he regretted never getting, or at least during his presidency, not getting universal health care passed. And he was very grateful to LBJ who got it done. And uh, LBJ, knowing what my grandfather had gone through, trying to get that done, came out to independence and signed the Medicare bill on the uh, stage at the Truman Library and gave my grandparents Medicare card one and card two. So so he, I think he regretted not getting being able to get that done. But the, the hardest decision or set of decisions, and he always said this, uh, was Korea, was, was sending young men into war, period, uh, especially five years after a, a world war is, has ended and, and cost so much in terms of human life and capital to send them back into into a war and a war that was a, a police action, very hard to explain to people, hard to, you know, we're trying to stop something. We are just trying to stop them at the border. Uh, it was a, a, It was a new kind of policy and something that was very difficult. So I think that he always said that was the hardest set of decisions he made. I don't know about regrets. I don't think he regretted stepping in and and bringing the United Nations in to help South Korea. Uh, didn't regret it at all, but it was a tough. That was his toughest set of decisions. Now, I know you mentioned the Truman Library Museum and in Independence. You've been engaged with the Truman Institute that helps support that library museum. Did you ever visit there when you were a kid with with your grandfather? And and what can you tell us about the recent renovation of that really terrific museum? Uh, yeah, I have been there with him. Um, I've been there on several occasions with him over the years. There are pictures, I think the first time I went, I must have been a year and a half old. Um, so there are pictures of Grandpa kind of following me down the following me down the uh, corridors, probably trying to make sure I don't pull anything off the shelves <laughs> or push any buttons. <laughs> but, uh, and they've done a an unbelievable job. I got a look at the new the newly renovated museum um, earlier this year with my son. Uh, my son, Wesley, and I went down there for the um, 
for the sort of grand limited reopening. They've had to close again now due to the pandemic, due to the rise of numbers. But they have, um, there were, uh, there's so much more in that museum, so much more in the exhibits, but it doesn't, weirdly, it doesn't feel like it. They've designed the flow really, really well so that it's easy to go and take this all in. There's more interactive material. It just looks really good. So they've they've done a, a really really good job. Yeah, they had well they had a they had a camera crew of course they had a local television station following us through and they put a microphone on me to get my reaction. And it must have been really hard for them afterwards because every time I turned a corner, all I did was go wow wow <laughs> wow. So we have one quote from Clifton Truman Daniel. Wow, wow thank you. <laughs> I have one thing to say about this, and I'm going to sum it up in this way. Wow. <laughs> so <laughs> now let me ask you this. I'm, I've been curious about this as well. Do you? Do you talk with other people who are relatives of presidents? And if you do, what have you found in common with them or maybe that's different from your experience? I not only talk to them, we have a club. We we used to joke about this. I've been friends with, with various other descendants of presidents over the years. Margaret Hoover, uh, the, the, I keep calling them the Johnson girls. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> <laughs> Linda and Lucy. And... And Susan Ford Bales, and that that has grown. We used to joke that we should we should get a club and we would have a secret password, the Dakota ring, and a layer right. and an invisible plane. Oh, layer, yeah. yeah, yeah, we need a layer. Uh, we we still don't have that. But uh, Matthew McKinley, who is President McKinley's great great nephew and President Cleveland's great grandson, he has a double whammy. Matthew McKinley and Tweed Roosevelt, who is Teddy Roosevelt's great grandson, and uh, Linda Johnson, Rob, and I are the uh, founding members of the Society of Presidential Descendants. And we are just getting started, but this October at Long Island University, we are going to present our first book award for books on uh, presidential leadership. Is is what our focus is, and we're we're developing, trying to develop more programs on civic engagement leadership, politics, history. So, and the, I don't know how many we have in the ranks, but we, we have an 11, I think there's 11 of us on the board that meet monthly to talk about these things. And we are always trying to recruit more. So it's an actual thing. So yeah, I not only talk to them, uh, I talk to them monthly and we go to each other's stuff. We always have, I mean, you know, Key West, uh, in January and February, uh, Matthew and Tweed and uh, Mary Jean Eisenhower are going to be down in Key West for, we do an annual presidential descendants weekend over President's Day weekend. And in January, we're going to do a historic symposium on presidential travel. So uh, President Eisenhower, of course, had the highways, uh, you know, the interstate system. And Tweed Roosevelt's going to talk about the transition in, in travel and his Great grandfather's day. You know, we used to, we used to use a lot of rivers in this country, and then then we were using fields and roads. So all of that evolved. We uh, get together, and the second half of that question, uh, what we have in common, obviously, is the fact that we're related to press. And I think the, the two things that each of us tries to do is to preserve your ancestors' legacy, be helpful where you can, uh, but to do something with that legacy that's your own. For me, for example, that um, that included uh, visiting Hiroshima and Nagasaki in 2012, and again in 2013, and recording survivor testimony for the Truman Library 
um, some of which is being used in the exhibit. Well, please, as that uh, society continues to do its work and grow, remember American POTUS. We'd love to have everyone on to, to talk about the uh, the efforts you're doing. That, that, that sounds really neat. Be careful what you wish for. <laughs> I want to talk real quick about your mother. Sure. What was what was she like? I know my uh, my family was a huge fan of her writing. Uh, she had a career as a singer, journalist, and mystery writer. Tell, what can you tell us about your mother? My God, where, where, where to start? To start? <laughs> uh, well, mom had the, you know, of course she had the, the ultimate in, uh, she was a, a daughter and that's a different thing than being a grandchild or a great grandchild. So she, uh, she had the whole, the whole thing. She wanted early on to be a singer. She started taking singing lessons, I think when she was 10, 11, 12 years old, um, and always had her sights set on that. Uh, the other things just sort of followed from there. She, uh, his mom, she had, uh, I, I just remember all the stories, you know, uh, uh, one of my favorites used to be uh, told uh, told to me by Irv Kupsinitz, who was a uh, columnist for the uh, Tribune and the Sun-Times over the course of his career. And I guess uh, in the early 1950s, when Mom was going out to Los Angeles to do a television show with Jimmy Durante, she had a layover in Chicago long enough to get lunch out of it. So Kup, Grandpa called Cup, his friend of his, called Irv Kupsinitz and said, you know, Harvick's coming through. You know, be nice. Take care of my baby. I think was what Cup always said. And so uh, Cup uh, took her to to the pump room for lunch, and they gave him the second best table in the house. And Cup thought, well, I bring president's daughters here more often. And she went on her way to California, and she came back a few days later and had the same layover. So Cup picked her up again, took her back to the pump room, and they gave him the best table in the house. And Cup Cup took the head waiter side, uh, head waiter side, and said, "You know, not that I'm complaining, but on the way out, she's got the second best table. On the way back, she got the best one. What what happened?" And the head waiter smiled and said, "Well, on the way out, she was the president's daughter. On the way back, she's a television star." <laughs> That's great. <laughs> she had a she had an interesting career, a good career. The, the murder mysteries uh, came naturally. My grandfather, my mother used to tell me that Grandpa would sit in the study reading these enormous two inch thick biographies and autobiographies of presidents and world leaders and two feet away was my mother and my grandmother in matching chairs reading murder mysteries and my grandmother would pass the her her throwaways on to mom and mom would read them so they the two of them read murder mysteries and i think mom just one day said you know let me take a shot at this i always i used to joke that she enjoyed being a murder mystery writer because she never did like washington very much and she could sit in her living room in new york and Killed them off one at a time. <laughs> well, I know. Uh, again, we were great fans, particularly my mother. Just uh, ate those up every every uh, every one of them she read through and through. So we really enjoyed those. And one more question: yeah. the, the the show "Give Them Hell, Harry." How did you come to play that? I know it was originally played by James Whitmore. How did that come about? And and where can we see you performing? Uh, that came about through friends of ours, Gary and Nancy Katz. Um, who are Nancy is sadly no longer with us. Gary is a retired orthopedic surgeon living in Boca Raton, Florida. And I met Gary and Nancy through programs at Little White House. And after I took early retirement from my last job, Gary suggested that I come give some speeches about my grandparents in Boca and, and in fact, lined up three or four of them for me. And I began to do that every year. And finally, as I got a little older, at the end of these speeches, people started to say, well, hey, you look like your grandfather. And I thought, oh, okay. And then I remembered I'd seen 
Give Hell Harry with Whitmore uh, on, on an airplane of all places, the, the film version of it. And I, uh, I mentioned that to Nancy, and she said, yes, do that. Do that now. Do not delay. That's a great idea. So she encouraged me to do it. And then Polly and I were having lunch with an old friend of ours who runs the Sailing Hall Center for Performing Arts in Wilmington, North Carolina, where we used to live. Uh, Tony Reisenbach and Tony was here on a theater conference in Chicago and I mentioned that to him and he just sort of looked at me and cocked his head to the side and went hmm okay the next thing I know I get an email back saying all right I set aside two weeks for you in October 2017 get the script learn it (laughs) love Tony no pressure no pressure Um, and that that worked really well I did eight shows in Wilmington in October of 2017 and that got me an agent and got me on the road uh, as you can imagine, things have kind of stopped cold for a while, but we're back at it again. We were in Jefferson City, Missouri last month, and we are going to be back in Wilmington on the 18th and 19th of September. And then the following weekend, I'm doing a couple of shows for the Masons down in Springfield. And I think the next major one is October 20th or 22nd. Let me look at my calendar. October 22nd at Long Island University. And that's in concert with um, uh, Tweed Roosevelt. That's, that's in concert with the uh, Book Prize, Society of Presidential Descendants. So it's been, it, the, as I keep saying to people who ask, the weirdest retirement program <laughs> ever invented. Well, Clifton, this has been really interesting so far, but I want to get a little more personal if it's okay with you. <laughs> Sound okay. Good? All Here right. Go. Everyone see sure. <laughs> I apologize in advance. Everyone <laughs> seems to have different names for their grandparents, like Gramps, Papa, Granddad, and so on. So it sounds like Grandpa was the name of choice in the Truman household. Were there other names that were forbidden for you grandchildren to use? Uh <laughs> No, not that I can. Uh, none of us would have been crazy enough to call him Harry. So uh, <laughs> uh, that no, he was Grandpa, and my grandmother uh, and my mother had the had the uh, nickname Gammy, G A M M Y. Which when when I got married to Polly, her her family, some of her cousins, there was a a branch of her family that split off and went to Australia. And when I told them that my well, now when I told Polly that that my my grandmother's nickname was Gammy, she went, "Oh my God, that means like infected in Australia," oh, no. and it does. It does. Oh, Old English Australian, yeah. wow. like you know, how's your foot? Well, it's a little gammy. I've got a gammy toe, <laughs> right. and I and that yeah, that sort of killed it for me. <laughs> I've been I've been referring to her as my grandmother ever since. There you go. <laughs> uh, uh, but no, yeah, those are the nicknames we had, and that those were the uh, nicknames that my my uh, parents wanted from their grandchildren. So they were Gammy and Grandpa. Nice. How would you describe the very sweet love affair between your grandparents, Harry and Bess? Uh, outstanding and nearly lifelong. Uh, my grandparents met when my grandfather was six and my grandmother was five, and they met in Sunday school. My great grandmother. Maddie Truman had taken Grandpa. They were Baptists, but she took him to the First Presbyterian Sunday School, I think, for a couple of reasons. One, she was 
kind of at odds with the people, and she didn't like some of the folks, the highfalutin folks in the Baptist church. Also, the, the Presbyterian school was closer, um, closer to home. And she was determined, though, that they were going to have uh, a Christian, you know, the, the church education. They were going to have that kind of background. That, that kind of thing was very important to the family, that you, you know, you were kind to people, you were decent, you were, you know, you were honest, you worked hard. They wanted all those values instilled, and it worked. But they met, Grandpa saw my grandmother for the first time in that class and fell in love right then and there. He even wrote about it in his memoirs. He would, you know, he forever remembered the little girl with the golden curls and bright blue eyes. I mean, she had a couple when she was young, uh, just these bright blue marbles. Uh, and he just, he fell in love right then and there. She, on the other hand, paid him absolutely no attention um, for the next uh, for the next 20 years. <laughs> um, he, uh, they went all the way through grade school and high school together. And she, she knew him. She thought he was nice enough, but she didn't take, you know, and he, I guarantee you, he never declared himself. So he was just sort of uh, moon over her from his seat in the classroom. And every once in a while, carried her books home from school for her. And it wasn't until, it wasn't until 1910 they both and they graduated high school in 1903, so they were uh, they were older. And 1910, he was across the street at his aunt's house, right across the street from my grandmother's house. And she came into the room. His aunt Margaret came into the room and said, "I've got a cake plate that belongs to Mrs. Wallace, my grandmother's mother, uh, across the street. And will somebody take it back for me?" And my mother always said that Grandpa shot up and grabbed that plate with something approaching the speed of light. Ran across the street with it and rang the doorbell, hoping that my grandmother would answer the door, and she did. And he had been the Harry Truman she had known before was shy, bookish, uh, you know, glasses. He couldn't. Uh, she was the athlete in the family. Uh, he was, you know, his glasses. He wasn't allowed to run, jump, or do anything on the playground. So this shy, bookish kid that she thought was nice enough. Everybody respected him, but she didn't. You know, he wasn't. Uh, he, he was the quiet kid in the corner. And the guy standing in front of him on the porch had been drilling with the Missouri National Guard. He'd already been working on the farm for four years. So he was uh, he had more muscle than he'd ever had before. And he was tanned and windburned and full of confidence. And I, <laughs> my mother said, I think that my grandmother took one look at him and went, oh, <laughs> well, come in. Uh, that's what started it. He, he uh, began to write to her regularly because he was out on a farm in Grandview. And she was back in Independence, and he got to Independence every once in a while, but it was not an easy trip, even though Grandview was only 26 miles away. In those days, it took some doing. Um, so he wrote to her. They wrote, the, the Truman Library owns 1,362 letters that he wrote to her uh, over the course of their lives. Yeah. And we only have 184, I think, of my grandmother's back. And that's because he he came on this is off the subject, but he came home uh one day in nineteen fifty five around Christmas time and he found her in front of the fire in Independence, burning all the letters that, that she'd ever written to him. And he stopped her. He said, What what are you doing? And she said, Burning all these letters. And he said, You shouldn't do that. And she said, You've read them, right? And he said, Yes, but think of history. And and think of history. And she said, Oh, I have and chucked in another stack. <laughs>
he, you know, they, but they were, they were very close. They wrote constantly. We know there were as many letters. The only reason she missed those is because she missed them. They were in the backs of drawers or tucked in between pages of books as, as bookmarks. So she just, uh, the, the, uh, Ray Gesselbrock, the former special assistant to the director of the Truman Library, just called it an act of poor housekeeping. She just missed them. She'd found them. We wouldn't have those either. But they, they were in touch constantly. They wrote twice a day because you had morning and afternoon mail in those days. So if they, they'd find the time and they, yeah, if they, if they'd had texting, oh my God, they would never got anything done. But, um, so very, very close. He, uh, you know, he shared everything with her, um, despite the fact that she once said that a uh, politician's wife, uh, her role in public is to sit still, keep her mouth shut, and make sure her hat's on straight. Um, she didn't actually, I mean, she would do that in public, but she didn't play that game in private. She, she critiqued his speeches. She gave him advice. She even acted as go-between every once in a while. And if somebody called and wanted something and he wasn't there, um, she knew enough to to find the right people and, and say yes or no. So, and she liked hearing about the game. She wanted to hear uh, the political game. She wanted to hear who was trying to do what to whom. Um, and she was she was pretty astute at it. So, a very very close relationship. They were partners, and together for oh my God, he married in 1919. He died in 1972. That's quite a run. I should be able to do math better than that. So recently on Twitter, the Truman Library posted a short video of you and Will fighting in the pool while Harrison looks on. Pretty funny. <laughs> what was it like for you boys growing up in a politically famous family like that? Um, we didn't know. <laughs> we didn't know what was going on. Um, the grandpa was, I found out, <laughs> I, I did not know. My parents didn't even tell me my grandfather was president of the United States. I found out in school. Then the the joke being, thank God it was first grade and not fifth or sixth. So I went to school one morning in first grade, and the teacher said, wasn't your grandfather president of the United States? And I said, I, I don't know. Uh, good question. And I went home that afternoon, and my mother loved telling the story on me for years. I went home and dropped my uh, book bag at the front door, and I marched across the living room, and I stood in front of my mother and put my hands on my hips and said, Mom, did you know? But Grandpa Truman had been president of the United States. And she said, of course, but just remember something. Any little boy's grandfather can be president. Don't let it go to your head. Um, it's a typical Truman statement. So we, we had no idea really what was going on around us. It was fun to be with Grandpa because, boy, you, you got first in line or you snuck in the back door at places like the World Fair and, and Yankee Stadium. And, you know, it was fun to be with him. Um, William at one point, my late brother William, uh, said, he turned to my father, we were traveling to Key West with my grandparents and there'd been a, a, a plane and then a limousine and then another plane and another limousine. And Will turned to dad and said, dad, are we getting richer? And my father just <laughs> said, no, <laughs> my father said, no, unfortunately not. We're just traveling with your grandfather. We didn't have any clue. I mean, we knew I mean, when we got older, we understood who he was and what he had been. But and, and it really wasn't, um, you know, where, where I went to school. I mean, I was a Park Avenue kid in New York. Uh, the kids I went to school with, uh, the sons and grandsons of Wall Street financiers and doctors and bankers. And, uh, you know, one of the kids in my class was Walter Cronkite's son. You know, who paid attention to me? I was one of the crowd. 
So speaking of that, tell us about his personality a little bit. Did he have a good sense of humor? Was he a disciplinarian or did he spoil his grandkids? What about your grandmother on the, in that too? <laughs> uh, the, so those questions, yes, yes, and yes. Uh, <laughs> he had, uh, I'll get to his sense of humor last. I love that. Um, he, he was, could be a disciplinary and he mostly expected my parents to take care of that when we were around my brother and I, my grandmother, well, go take it backwards. My grandmother was a perfect grandmother. She would, if my mother told us that we couldn't have a certain toy because it would, you know, put our eye out or cut our fingers off or whatever she was afraid of. My grandmother would wait until she left the room and ask us, how many do you want? And then she would buy us. They'd buy us whatever we want. And she got us a couple of, uh, I think they used to call them Okinawa guns. And they actually, back in the day, they, for the spring, they actually shot plastic bullets. It's like the forerunner of yes. the Nerf, the Nerf gun. Yeah, right. I remember, yeah. yeah. And of course, uh, we were told not to play with them in the house. So that was the first thing we did. We put... Yeah a uh, pop can up on the coffee table and started plinking away at it with this thing. And my grandfather was the only one home. He was back in the study trying to read, and he kept hearing sprawling, sprawling, sprawling. <laughs> so he got up and got his cane. I was 12 years old at the time, so he was, he was 85 years old. And he came slowly into the room, and William... We were taking turns, and Will was supposed to be we're each other's lookout, you know, in case Grandpa mm -hmm. came looking. Will deserted his post, just ran without so much as a lookout. And I was fighting down the gun when it went straight up in the air. And I, you know, I thought, how did that happen? And I turned around and looked up, and there was Grandpa holding the gun. And I thought, oh, God, he is going to roast me. And he didn't say anything. He just glared at me, turned on his heel, and walked off. And I, I was so ashamed of myself. Just that look from my grandfather was enough. Um, he hedged his best. I never saw that done again until I was like 35 years old, and I had to wear white gloves to handle it because it was a museum exhibit by that time. So he hid that very well. And I told my mother that story uh, some years ago, and she said, oh, God, yeah, that look always worked on me. So he could be a strict disciplinarian. So my, my grandmother was, was, was a little more fun in that regard. But they both had a really good sense of humor. My grandmother, for example, she... <laughs> The first night in the White House, the uh, head, I think it was the head usher. I think it was Alonzo Fields. So whoever it was, uh, they, he took the drinks order. My grandmother ordered an old-fashioned. And my, uh, and he went and made her one. And she drank it, but she apparently didn't like it. She sent word down that she, that wasn't quite the recipe she liked. So the next night, he tried another one. And she took one sip and said, that's still not it. And so he tried yet another recipe. And she took a sip and said, nope. And now he's getting frustrated. So he he went back and he took a fresh glass and he put ice in it and poured straight bourbon over it and set it in front of her. And she took a sip and said, whoa, now that's an old fashioned. <laughs> so, he also said probably about the same time somebody asked her if she poured, if it was true that she poured bourbon down the throats of her Thanksgiving turkey to tenderize it. And my grandmother said, no, we, we pour the bourbon down the throats of our guests, and they just think the turkey's tender. <laughs> uh, Sounds she like had a perfect Thanksgiving. <laughs> grandpa, yeah, yeah, real. Uh, grandpa also had a very good sense of humor. He took the job very seriously. They both did. They took life and their friends and their family very seriously, but never themselves. Um, my grandfather, one of the uh, – my favorite story about him was that he um, – <laughs> 
he was home one day when the doorbell rang and he answered the door and there was a man, a stranger that he, somebody didn't know. And this is back before the, before he had secret service protection and the front gate wasn't locked. So this guy had just walked up the front gate and it turned out that grandpa looked behind him. His car had just stopped dead in front of the house, you know, smoke billowing out from under the hood, whatever. And I said, I'm sorry, can I use your phone? I got to call a garage. And grandpa said, Oh God, yeah, come in. So he, he called, the guy called the garage from, from the front hall and, and the mechanic said he, yeah, no problem. He'd be right over. And grandpa walked the man to the door and they talked for a couple of minutes, probably about, you know, my grandfather was interested in cars. So they probably talked about what he thought was wrong, what was it going to take to fix it. And I don't know, you know, that kind of thing. And then the, the mechanic pulled up out front with the record and the man shook grandpa said, said, thank you. I, I'm, I really appreciate the help. Uh, and grandpa said, not at all. I hope you get it fixed and, and get, can be on your way. And been nice talking to you. And the guy walked halfway down the front steps and he turned and stopped. And he looked back up at my grandfather and he said, you know something? And don't take offense at this, but you look a hell of a lot like that SOB Harry Truman. (laughs) (laughs) And my grandfather just smiled at him and said, well, uh, you know something? And I hope you won't take offense at this. I am that SOB. (laughs) Clifton, my final question let's let's uh wrap things up with what would you say is the most important life lesson that you got from your grandfather uh years ago when when i rediscovered my grandparents you know and i don't know if this is true for all of us presidential descendants but you learn about them a bit at home you learn about a lot about them in school um the only difference really is that you can go home and fact check with your parents um you um, so you learn about all this stuff in school, and you you wind up. Uh, it's, sometimes it's hard because you've got a famous relative, a president, and you begin to wonder. Well, you know, who am I? What do I do? Where do I fit into this? You know, do I have to follow the same path? That, you know, all of that. I uh, when I was in my early mid thirties, I went back and started. I read David McCullough's book and my mother's two books about my grandparents. I started reading about them, and I rediscovered both my grandparents as as human beings, not as lines in a textbook, not as a series of dates and decisions and things like that. And I discovered that they were both just very good, straightforward, honest, hardworking human beings. And that was kind of a revelation to me because that's something I think everybody can aspire to be. Um, so that's really the most important lessons they taught us just and it, it goes back to wrap it up it goes back to that tombstone and uh, that headstone tombstone arizona do your damnedest well that is the perfect way to wrap it up clifton thank you so much for joining us and what was a fascinating conversation yeah this has been great thank you for taking the time oh my pleasure well, it was good to talk with you too take care be safe stay well thanks for listening to this episode of the american potus podcast We'd like to thank grandson and author Clifton Truman Daniel for joining us on this episode about his grandfather, Harry Truman. More information on his shows and books can be found on AmericanPotus.com. If you have questions on this episode or ideas for future topics, you can easily send us a note on AmericanPotus.com, Facebook, or Twitter. We would also appreciate you taking the time to provide a positive rating and review on the player you're listening to right now. And if you're new to American POTUS, please check out the 50-plus episodes that are available in the playlist. 
covering the presidents and the presidency from the very beginning. Graphic design for American POTUS is by The Thought Bureau, an original music score by Jonathan Clark Music. Finally, it's our presidential last word from Harry Truman, quote, Good name and honor are worth more than all the gold and jewels ever mined.